calls a daily discussion. Oh, welcome to episode. 433 of the COVID Calls, a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Adia Benton. I am a cultural anthropologist of public health and medicine in post-conflict and development settings, uh, working at Northwestern University at Evanston, Illinois. But I'm coming to you live from, I think it's still snowing, maybe not, um, in Chicago, Illinois. Today, I talk with anthropologist Thurka Sangaramurthy. I'll tell you more about her in, in, a, in a minute. Um, just a reminder, you can usually catch COVID calls live on weekdays, but you know, um, Scott tells me that uh, he's, he's rushing to finish 500, so you, you can probably catch it day or night. Um, it is on the YouTube channel. You can hear it on COVID calls anytime recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID calls. Please help spread the word and send suggestions for guests and future topics. As of today, February 25th, 2022, there are 430 million cases, which is nearly double the cases last year, uh, last time I hosted the show in October. Um, 5.92 million deaths um, from COVID-19 have, have um, been recorded. So Scott has been reading obituaries and stories of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic. And I'd like to continue in that vein now by talking about my good friend, uh, the physician and anthropologist, Paul Edward Farmer Jr., who died at the age of 62 on February 21st. Some days after the announcement of his death in Rwanda at age 62, it seemed that everybody loved Paul. Um, I know that I did he loved me back. And there's nothing special about either of those things because he actively sought love and gave it as freely. I often felt like he projected his own condition onto others, a way of manifesting their more desirable personal qualities. Um, he'd often tell me, and people who know me know that I'm very grumpy, that I had cardiomegaly, which in Paul speak meant that I was big hearted and kind and not afflicted with heart disease. Um, so I first met Paul when I was an undergraduate in the late 90s, and he guest lectured in a small seminar run by two of his anthropologist friends, Pat Simons and Lucille Newman. We were assigned two of his books. I mean, he was still in his late 30s at the time um, for a class, and I had not read either book, and he subtly called me out on it. We corresponded on email for years about human rights and health, liberation, theology, and occasionally meeting at conferences or on Harvest campus uh, where uh, as I completed my PhD. He later invited me to spend my junior sabbatical in the Department of Global Health and Social Medicine where he was chair. An astute critic of social, political, and economic inequalities and their impact on health, he understood a person's place in hierarchy. He lingered a bit longer with the driver, the janitor, the waitstaff, the cleaner. And as most will tell us, he loved his patients too. My WhatsApp conversations with him from before the pandemic were filled with pictures of him with former patients in Peru, Rwanda, and Sierra Leone. He had once boasted about hosting a large dinner party for Freetown-based Ebola survivors at one of the most expensive hotels in the city at a time when survivors were stigmatized and held at arm's length. 
The day before he died, he sent me what he called a sweet video that medical students at, at the University of Global Health Equity in Rwanda had made for him. It was a photo montage with Nina Simone's Young, Gifted, and Black as the soundtrack. I told him he was only one of those three things. Paul seemed to walk the walk and talk the talk, which is why so many of us were disappointed when earlier this month, he signed a letter supporting the Harvard anthropologist John Komaroff, an alleged serial abuser and harasser. We knew from our personal experiences that some of our intellectual heroes not only have failed to practice what they preach, but that they also engaged in predatory behavior that was at odds with their public scholarship. But Paul was a keen observer of human nature, organizations um, and the organizations that humans inhabit. So we knew, he knew that patron-client relations were crucial and exploitative within elite academia. But it typically seemed important to him that he not use uh, the power and goodwill that he'd accrued with his you know, celebrity status and his prestigious awards uh, to harm others. Um, that same week, he'd even written, uh, co-written a letter, an op-ed in the Boston Globe, decrying racist treatment of his colleagues at the Brigham and Women's Hospital by white nationalists. To me, it made no sense and was inconsistent. His signing the Komarov letter, as small an act as he per perceived it to be, would have had um, a significant impact on whether students felt they could trust him or even trust the integrity of his life's work. How could he not have known? So obviously, I was disturbed and reached out to him. I was kind of surprised. Um, at the time, he seemed to think he actually was safeguarding LGBTQ students from abuse in the field, as Komarov claimed to have been doing when speaking to one student in a way that she found disturbing about the danger of her being raped during field work. I told him what I knew about the situation, which were, was mostly detailed accounts that I'd heard from others about decades of harassment by Komarov and his wife, star academics in the department, and argued that signing such a letter did not align with the values that I knew he held dear. He immediately apologized to me. I told him that I was not the person he needed to apologize to. We repeated this back and forth over the next couple of days, um, and he was working these 14-hour days balancing clinical teaching responsibilities in Rwanda with administrative responsibilities back in Boston. The weight of having been on the wrong side of this important issue was eating away at him. He wrote to me, I just don't feel like I have the thick skin required for this, nor do I want thick skin. On the evening before the retraction uh, was uh, of, by a majority of the signatories was published, he sent me a message saying he planned to retract a signature and apologize. He insisted on an apology and not simply a retraction. He didn't like the idea of backpedaling but this was not the consensus view it would seem among the other signatories in the group. The letter was published as a retraction only. As we continued to talk over the course of these weeks, these interceding weeks, I sensed he was growing tired of the shit that he had put up with among the anthropologists. He relished his clinical work, his clinical teaching, and he had a sense of purpose in his role as chair of the Department of Global Health and Social Medicine. In the last week of his life, Jan Brunson, a colleague at the University of Hawaii who'd attended a, a webinar in which he was presenting, publicly questioned him on the letter. She asked him how he reconciled his social justice work with having signed that letter. First of all, he said, I don't want, I want to say that I don't think I can reconcile that. I think it was an error. And so I agree with Dr. Brunson. And I think saying that feels insufficient. I said that as well. I wouldn't want to sound like I was defending myself by saying that the topic at hand, 
was about graduate student advising and a request for transparency in the process. I agree with the critique. I don't feel that those two things can reconcile. I think it's better just to say that I made a mistake and I'm very sorry about it. I told Paul that I saw his response. He wrote to me, I've only said one thing and that is I am sorry and I was wrong. But I feel I've dishonored myself by signing a letter before knowing shit about any legal case. In fact, it was about protecting LGBTQ grad students, I thought. What an idiot. He continued, you already told me I was an idiot. And did I contest that? Or defend myself? I did not. For the record, I never called him an idiot. I inquired about his health because he looked tired during the video. So you'll rest, I asked him. He said, yes, when I get to Sierra Leone, my, he was in Rwanda when he said this, uh, I will get more rest. I was skeptical because he would always qualify his promises to me about getting rest, about taking time off. But don't forget how much I love the clinical part. So that's kept me going XOXOX. Paul could be so fucking hard headed. He lived enough for three extraordinary lifetimes, but he died doing what he loved. So rest in peace. My guest today is Therka Sangura Murthy. Therka is a cultural and medical anthropologist and public health researcher with over 20 years of experience conducting community-engaged ethnographic research, including rapid assessments among vulnerable populations in the United States, Africa, and the Latin America, and Caribbean. Her work is broadly concerned with power and subjectivity in global economies of care, and she has worked in this intersection on diverse topics, which include global health, migration, HIV and STDs, environmental health disparities. She has done it all. So she is the author of two books, Rapid Ethnographic Assessments, A Practical Approach and Toolkit for Collaborative Community Research, which I use to conduct rapid ethnographic assessments. Um, the second book, the first book actually, Treating AIDS, Politics of Difference, Paradox of Pre Prevention, uh, published by Rutgers in 2014. And she has two books in press. She's Positive, The Extraordinary Lives of Black Women Living with HIV, coming out this year, and Immigration and the Landscape of Care in Rural America, um, coming out next year, it looks like, with the University of North Carolina Press. Dr. Sandor Murthy is co-chair of the American Anthropological Association's member, Members Programmatic Advisory and Advocacy Committee. I think, is that called M M IMPAC? IMPAC. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. And we have so many acronyms. And a board member of the Society for Medical Anthropology. She serves as the, as the Associate Editor of Public Health Reports, Editorial Board Member of the American Anthropologist and the inaugural social, behavioral, and qualitative research section editor for PLOS Global Public Health. So submit your qualitative research to that journal. Um, she's currently associate professor of anthropology at the University of Maryland. Welcome, Thurka. I am so happy to be hosting you here today. Thank so. you so much for having me. And thank you for that, that beautiful sort of your thoughts. That was really important. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, thanks. It was, you know, it's been a tough couple of, yeah, tough couple of weeks. Um, so, um, where are you call? You know, my first question is always, where are you, it's like, where are yeah, you? Yeah. <laughs> where are you calling yeah. from? What's the, what's the pandemic yeah. situation there? Yeah. So, yeah, um, so my, my situation's a little, a little complicated. <laughs> I'm actually calling from Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. 
Um, I've been living here since, my goodness, um, December 2020. Um, and I just got back this week from, from the U.S. because I was evacuated in November with my family uh, back to the U.S. because of uh, civil war. Um, and we were just allowed to come back in February. So back here, um, Ethiopia in terms of COVID. <laughs> um, I did pull up some numbers because I wasn't sure what the latest ones were. So right now, just hearing you talk about the the numbers worldwide, it's just really, it's obscene. Those numbers are obscene. Um, staggering. Staggering, yeah. Um, Ethiopia right now, I know that it's, it's spotty. Everyone knows it's spotty, but it's around 500,000 confirmed cases cumulatively, about 7,500 deaths cumulatively. Um, the vaccine doses are, I don't know. Personally, I think it's, 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 it's strong. I mean, it, there could be a lot more. There's about 21 million vaccine doses that have been given out here. Um, obviously, much of this is really one dose, um, but that number is about 13%, which I think is, <laughs> I think it's pretty good. Um, but only 3% is really, you know, are folks who are considered fully vaccinated. Um, the numbers have come down a lot since the beginning of this year. It was it was pretty high, I think, the end of the year. Um, but right now, I think it's about two and a half percent positivity rate. Those numbers have come down, and the the wave was really, you know, it peaked at the end of last year and it's been going down ever since. So Do you, is it, so, so what's the, um, like, what are the, are, are there like mitigation strategies? Like what's going on? What, what is, what is it looking <laughs> like? I mean, well, the, you know, you just traveled this, this distance, you know, yeah. it's, it's willy nilly depending on where you go. Like, I've, you know, I, I mean, I'll say some stuff that I, I don't know. I'll, I'll start with what has been going on here the last year. <laughs> I, I, you know, I think for me, the, I, again, my, my, my situation is really limited to Addis. So you need to take this with, you know, a grain of salt in terms of me speaking on behalf, you know, in terms of like what's going on in Ethiopia more broadly, it's really Addis when I'm talking about this, because our movements have been largely very limited to Addis because of the security situation for the past year. So I can only really talk about what's been going on here. I, you know, honestly, I think the government's response was fairly effective. There were containment measures. I am, you know, it included restrictions on social gatherings. Um, there was a lot of people who were wearing face masks, to be honest with you. Um, physical distancing, uh, that was really mandatory. I think a lot of folks were as far as you know, I could see in terms of where I went and what I was seeing, I think there was a lot of compliance. Um, I think coming back right now, <laughs> February 2022, um, I think the restrictions are not as enforced. Um, and I think people are kind of losing steam in terms of what's, what's happening. There are far less people wearing masks. Um, generally, very few sort of containment measures. Um, and I think, you know, I mean, we can talk a little bit about this and, and, you know, this a lot too. Well, I think the emergency response is really, it really relied on primary public health infrastructure. Um, and it's very prevention based. 
you know, it's really a health extension program and other kinds of approaches like community mobilization and public awareness, you know, campaigns. Um, I think, you know, there's a tremendous amount of challenges here, just like in lots of other places around the world, especially in sub-Saharan Africa, um, limited resources, very weakening sort of health systems, issues yeah. in, you know, in terms of supplies of ventilators and oxygen, um, overcrowding. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I think, you know, the population lives outside of Addis, right? I mean, so it's, it's, it's not, you know, most of what I've seen is really so focused on Addis. I you know, really don't have a good understanding of what's happening in the rural areas. And, and it, this, I think most of COVID, I think Ethiopia has experienced civil conflict and then ultimately civil war. So that's another massive layer on top of what, what's been going on and what people have been able to do. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. Um, that's, and that's sort of been the, yeah, it's sort of like, I've been wondering actually about places like uh, Democratic Republic of Congo, which also had these sort of, you know, ongoing um, rifts. So yeah, it's, it's kind of interesting to think about the, like what, unrest will do in a like when it's layered on top of all of these um, different kinds of um, health infrastructure issues and public right. health ideologies. Um, so uh, I was wondering if you could, I know this is maybe taking a little, cause I kind of wanted to get into the rural stuff, but I think what I'll do is ask you your, uh, this, this thing, which I think is actually a really like fun question on this show, which is like your most vivid vivid memory about like, oh God. <laughs> your, like your COVID year or COVID years. Um, are are there any? Do you have one that stands out? Oh my God! Uh, you know, I I I think this was a I think this is a hard question. I have multiple vivid memories. I think a lot of mine has been really sort of disconcerting. I you know I I became a solo parent at the very beginning of the pandemic, um, that was really, uh, that was really difficult. Um, when my spouse actually left and moved to Ethiopia for work and, um, you know, because of what was happening, uh, we couldn't sort of join. And so I basically essentially, you know, again, I essentially became a solo parent to two school age kids sort of hunker down virtual schooling with me doing work virtually, um, <clears throat> unable to get help, you know, either from family um, because I do have immunocompromised uh, parents. Um, and then also just worrying about what was happening, you know, in terms of being an intergenerational caregiver, uh, albeit sort of far away. <laughs> um, and just, just this notion of being really isolated, um, that was that was hard. I think that was really difficult. And then then moving, um, being given a very short time to actually move uh, internationally during that time, and getting to a place that was um, really undergoing severe changes <laughs> politically, economically, um, socially. I think that was really you know that was that was really jarring. Um, in some ways, I felt more protected here than I was in the U.S., if, if that makes any sense. I can talk a little bit more about that. Um, you know, I, I didn't think that we were having those sort of 
conversations about masking or, you know, things like that. I you know, felt much safer here. Um, and then I think the other kind of major issue for me was actually losing people uh, to COVID. That was that was really difficult. Um, it, it really started, I think, not so much. I mean, I had family members who were affected, but they um, they recovered. But um, one of the major sort of impacts that I had early on was that um, one of the women that I work with, um, the I, I, I'm in the middle of an oral history project, or I, you know, one of the books that I'm publishing right now. It's a compilation of um, oral histories of 12 women that I've known for pretty much about 10 years, about a decade that I've been working with with the same women for a long period of time. Um, and she died at the very end of um, of year 2020 uh, from COVID, which really impacted her asthma. And she landed in the hospital and then eventually passed away. Um, so that was really difficult because I think you know I'd been so worried about all of them um, and and how how things were going to sort of pan out for for many of them in this situation. Um, so that was really difficult. Um, I actually sort of wrote about it in the book um, because I think, you know, it was it was something that I really wanted to kind of kind of process for myself and have other people sort of sort of remember her legacy in a, in a different way. Um, <clears throat> and then, you know, I had a couple of family members since then who have then passed away again. These are not, <laughs> I don't know what they're labeled as, are they COVID-related deaths? Are they attributable to COVID? I have no idea. I don't know how these things get designated, but these were people who had recovered from COVID but never really did, I think. So, right. um, yeah. No, I, 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 can, I can, I see that. Um, yeah, this, and this is something that I, I kind of, that has me wondering like how we, and, and I think I might've put this in your, um, when I was kind of sending you the, yeah. like, is like, how are we supposed to, like, how are we counting? You know, like we, one of the reasons or the, the, the occasion upon which Thurka and I started working together was we were writing <laughs> about um, enumeration and counting yeah. and like what yeah. and the social uses of that yeah. social and cultural yeah. and political uses of numbers, um, yeah. particularly as it comes to health. And so, you know, as you're telling me about how we choose to count the deaths, um, how we choose to understand these understand these dynamics, like what actually counts, you know, and even when I read those numbers, I was like, this is what they say the numbers are, but we understand them to be, we know that they're quite different. Um, so, so what, like, I guess maybe the question that I would pose to you is like, um, how do we count? Like, or what counts? What, what, you know, like what, what are the, um, the ways of counting that we think are important and under these circumstances? I think there's a lot here that, that reminds me, you know, somewhat of my work and all the things that we've talked about for, oh my God, over a decade now about counting, especially when it comes to HIV as well, right? I mean, I think these were definitions, um, there were case counts that have been reconfigured um, that became, you know, much more 
quote unquote revealing just because we started counting differently or thinking differently about how we count. So I think some of these things will are not really are not really clear even right now. I think these things are going to to continue to occur um, as we progress. You know, I think for me, it's 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 really hard. I you know the first person that I knew that died passed from COVID was um, at least we think it's COVID, right? I mean, this is part of the issue. Um, was my sister's college roommate um, who very young you know, totally physically fine. This was, you know, well before the the vaccine. Um, but I think the official record was that she died of a blood clot. Um, but I think later or her family had always suspected it was COVID. Um, and then I think it was the same thing with, um, with the person that I was just talking about. I think, I'm not sure what the official diagnosis was, but um, she was officially admitted for, for asthma, an asthmatic attack. And so, um, and I think that it's the same thing with my, my uncle who passed away. I think it had to, you know, the official thing was a heart attack. Um, and so again, you know, I, I don't know when we'll know or how we'll come to know about all of these deaths or related deaths or even this notion of what this relationship even means, right? I think that's that's sort of interesting. I think the other thing about the counting is the recovery part. And this really, this really bothers me. Um, and I'm not really sure exactly, you know, how this is going to all play out. I think it's really fascinating as it's sort of unfolding this notion of long COVID or how people are talking about long COVID. Um, and this process of, you know, who's actually recovered, you know, those are numbers too, right? Um, and we don't, we don't know. Um, no idea. <laughs> and, and you know, it's funny, like, I was actually yeah. one of, I was looking back at my old text with, with Paul, and he's, you know, he was like, uh, I actually, I don't know if I should even say this. I'll just say this about um, COVID. Um, we were talking about, because, you know, he was, of course, an infectious disease, diseases physician, and we were complaining about, um, this heart condition that we both shared and how um, mine was probably viral. And, and, you know, he was like, oh, fuck viruses. Like we, we just, we yeah. live, we live, we, we get them. We don't know what their effects are beyond the sort of immediate symptoms. Yeah. And, you know, of course he's sort of biased towards the, he was biased towards the bacterial and the parasitic because you take a drug and, yeah. you know, you kill it and it's gone. The virus, yeah. the viruses, depending on which ones they are, is that's not necessarily true unless you're, you know, yeah. you know, it's hepatitis or something like that. And so we were kind of talking about like what, yeah, like what would recovery look like? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, um, however you choose to read that, uh, <laughs> that anecdote, but, but we were yeah. certainly, we were certainly talking about, um, what we don't know and how to think yeah. and how to think about it. My brother had, yeah. um, my brother had his, like he had COVID in March, 2020. Yeah. And he was immunocompromised and everyone around him got better in two days. Yeah. Um, my nephew didn't get COVID at all, or we don't know if he did because they weren't letting yeah. him get tested. And my brother was sick for six weeks that we know of, you know, like there, and it may be because of the medications that he was taking that sort of yeah. kept him from dying. But there's like a lot of, um, 
there's a and and it's we're learning a lot, but it's fuzzy. And I think for a long time, no one wanted to admit it. I mean, think about all the other viruses that may very well be happening right now, like very circulating right now, causing similar long-term whatever. So anyway, we're medical anthropologists and we could be talking about this all day (laughs) and categories. No, no, and I think, you know, it it really, you know, I also want to say it really hit close to home about a month ago um my older son who's 13 who had just gotten the booster because he was allowed to get the booster um right like a week right after he got the booster um started complaining about a sore throat and um and my spouse wasn't looking so great either and so we had the rapid test this was back in the u.s we had the rapid test they took it um my son tested positive and my spouse didn't. And so um, the rest of us didn't. Um, and so we went, got the lab test for confirmation and both my spouse and my son had COVID. I, you know, again, I don't know what strain it was. I have no idea, but, um, but he, my son, my, my, my spouse got better after about five days. Um, my son complained of you know, had been, again, he was doing virtual schooling. So he was really tired a lot. He was complaining about his head being really sort of foggy, migraines, things, things he's never, ever complained about before. Um, And I was starting to get really freaked out um, and wondering, you know, if we should take him in, what, you know, what to do. Um, Again, hoping, quote unquote, it would pass. Um, trying to keep him away from my immunocompromised parents. Um, it was right. just a little nutty. And, you know, again, I don't know. I don't know if it's stress. I don't know. You know, we had no idea what was going on. And even back, coming back to Addis, the other thing was that he wasn't, again, he wasn't testing negative um, for travel. Um, and so, <laughs> so I was really, I think, just you know, really, really scared. And finally, one day he tested uh, negative um, and we were able to, you know, he left. I was still back in the U.S., but my spouse took both of our kids and came back to Addis. He was still complaining about, you know, he's been still complaining about a lot of issues, not as much, but still. But again, you know, I don't know if it's altitude. Addis is really high. (laughs) It's it's on the high altitude. You may never know. I won't know. And I, you know, if something pops up, it's always going to be, my God, is this a result of COVID? You know, two months ago, two years ago, I have no idea. And so um, I think, you know, for me, this is always going to be something that, that I think, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's been really interesting when it, when it hits home as well. Um, I think some of the other numbers that I'm, I'm really, I'm, I'm glad they're starting to come out. And I think that I'm really, it's, it, you know, I think I really care about, you know, are these sort of um, these other things in terms of you know, one of the numbers that really sticks out at me are the the number of children who've lost uh, a parent or a guardian that that's been really something that I haven't had time to process. Um, that's been really shocking um, in terms of job losses, food insecurity. Um, and then also, I think, you know, in terms of Ethiopia and other places, as well as the US, frankly, in terms of some of the work that I do on immigration and refugees and 
what the what the effects of this has been um, in terms of their security um, and their well-being. So I think those are some of the other things that I'm I'm interested in in terms of numbers and counting and and how we sort of come to see these things. sense. Um, so speaking of, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about um, the work that you've been that you've been doing on, say, immigration and labor and health. Um, so I, you know, just, you, I guess you can talk a little bit about that. But but Therka's work has um, been in East Shore, Eastern Shore, Maryland, um, which um, and, and seafood processing there. Um, so I was sort of like, um, I'd actually talked to somebody who was doing chicken fat, like poultry processing stuff in, um, where was it? Ar- Arkansas with the Arkansas, yeah, yeah, the, Ar- the, the Arkansas stuff. And I, and I kind of kept thinking about your work a lot when I was talking to her about it. Um, the Arkansas thing is weird because it's like, it layers, <laughs> all, it, it layers like all of colonial, like U.S. colonial um, yeah. politics. I don't know. Right. With the Marshall, is it the Marshall? Are we the Marshall Islands? Or oh, one yeah. of the, it's anyway. It might be. Yeah. yeah. But it's, it's like Tyson <laughs> has like this relationship with right. one of the, yeah. like it was, it's like this very bizarre thing. And like all of the workers yeah. in the poultry plant come from this series of like colonial colonized us islands. Yeah. And yeah. And it's like the largest pop anyway. I, but, but for you, um, <laughs> I know I am. I am always on tangents, but the you know it. I kept thinking, oh my God, Thurka's work on uh, you know seafood uh, processing. I was like, well, what did that look like? Who like what? What are folks in that situation processing and dealing with? Um, no pun intended. Dealing with with respect to COVID. Um, yeah, yeah. I think the you know I think the the part was that I you know I didn't I really couldn't go out there during COVID times, right? I I really. I wasn't physically being, you know, able to sort of um, go there, but I did a lot of work and and working with organizations that were really active in the area and really advocating for for what was going on. So my work more broadly is, um, you know, I had I had started to I had always worked on immigration, especially um, in my HIV work initially. Um, but when I was at CDC, um, so I was at I was at CDC. I guess I'd left that one out. Um, I was at <laughs> CDC before I came to academia. Um, when I was there, you know, a lot of our work was in the rural southeast, um, and it was really it was really interesting to me because I think, um, uh, you know, doing disease outbreak investigations in the rural out, you know, in the rural southeast, especially around um, sexually transmitted infections and HIV, it was really fascinating. I had I had never um, really thought about the rural context. I, you know, I was never trained in it. We weren't, we don't really talk about it. Um, and just, you know, just thinking about the drastic, you know, 
what was happening with healthcare infrastructure in rural areas was just really shocking to me. Um, and it was something that I was wholly unprepared for, I think. Um, we would go into places like Louisiana um, and there'd be a sign up on, on, on a government funded, um, you know, STI clinic saying we're closed, like we're closed permanently or we're closed, come back tomorrow. Um, so when I came to Maryland, um, I really wanted to, to really think through this sort of rural health issue um, and, and rural context more broadly. And so I went to go work on the Eastern Shore, which is nine counties. It's on the Delmarva Peninsula. It's a really fascinating place. It was, it was only connected to Maryland by a bridge in the late 50s. Before that, it had been completely, totally isolated. Um, it's a place that depends entirely on migrant labor, but it's also very politically conservative and very highly anti-immigrant. Um, and so it's, it's this really, it's this really interesting place um, where, you know, I went to study immigration and people told me, you really, you can't, you don't, you won't understand this unless you really understand rural health. Um, and it took me a long time to kind of understand what they meant by that. Um, and so, it was really, I think, helpful for me to actually personally firsthand, you know, to become sort of a witness to what had been going on in rural health for, for decades now in, in the U.S. Um, in terms of just the loss of resources, um, the corporatization of rural health care um, and just, you know, continued issues. And, you know, when so you and I wrote this piece on imagining rural immunity, which right. I just looked at it and I, you know, I, looking at those numbers, it was so early on in the epidemic so and it's early. really fascinating how we, we predicted what eventually did happen. And what's happening right now is that I think at that time when we wrote it, there were barely any cases. There weren't that many. And in fact, Donald Trump was like, look at the rural places. Isn't yep. it amazing? These are where our yep. good white people live. And we were like, oh my exactly. God. It was, um, it was, you know, it's a sort of pristine, and we talk about that imaginary, right, of the rural as this pristine where the viruses are really coming, you know, metaphorically and, you know, symbolically from, <laughs> from, um, from the urban, you know, from the urban sort of infecting the rural. And it's amazing, you know, they just, I think it was the University of Iowa that just did a, just did a report where, there are more there are more deaths in rural areas there are more cases in rural areas it's it's definitely you know shifted and i think we sort of predicted that um and unfortunately i think you know the only thing that i can say is that some of that is about you know i think that some of that discourse coming from academia and from politicians is that there's more vaccine hesitancy right we're going back to sort of these individual sort of behaviors um, and really moving away from what you and I talked about and what I, hopefully other people sort of know is that it's really about how we've left rural health systems behind and this complete dismantling of health systems in this in these places um, that make it really difficult for people to um, and, and other things as well. But um, so this was something that I was I was really thinking about in terms of these numbers and we're talking about numbers, how how much that's really shifted since we wrote that article, which was less than two years ago. And you know what? I was I actually went back to look at it, too. Um, first of all, I want to point out that anthropology is therefore a predictive science. Um, second of <laughs> all, um, 
that someone said that I think it was Andy Lakoff who said that to me after, and, and, yeah. and we just sort of chuckled yeah. about it like yes yeah. it's true look at us um yeah. you don't need any models um but we but we also talked about um the we talked about reservations we talked about yeah. prisons Mm-hmm. We, you know, right. and, and how those economies are sustained yeah. by all of these different, these sort of exploitative, extractive, yeah. oppressive kind of yeah. um, like spatial formations, which I think is what what a lot of your work is is kind of moving towards, especially when you're talking about like um, rural healthcare, rural labor, yeah. and um, and the health consequences of that. So. Um, you know that that's sort of like I remember thinking um, because I'm also trying to write about this with Ebola, like how to think about um, these conceptualizations of space that emerge out of like um, these sort of imperial um, imperial and capitalist uh, formations. Yeah. So, um, like, do you? I mean, so one thing I want to say is. Um, I have, you know, because I've read various versions of your um, work on the on the seafood processing stuff, I know a little bit more about, um, uh, I feel like I know quite a bit more about what the conditions are like um, there. So I'm wondering if you could do, not to like really push the issue, but a little bit, of, I guess, speculation about, um, even though you weren't there, have, it was more difficult to get there during... Yeah. COVID, some speculation about some of the conditions that would make it, I mean, I guess that would shape risk um, or that would shape um, the potential for yeah. getting care and all of those things. Or, or, do you have some some hint or idea about that? No, and I think this is, you know, so I think, you know, we, I think in that article also, you know, we really discussed well sort of the conditions um, that are particular to, you know, certain communities, right? you know, rural areas are very much propped up by prison economies, um, you know, indigenous reservations, um, a lot of migrant labor. um, And these are invariably, um, you know, as well as, you know, multitudes of African-American communities um, in these areas as well. And so um, you have situations where, at least for the, the, the folks that I work with, I can, I can talk about them very quickly and then sort of expand to rural areas more broadly. Um, so in terms of, you know, we think of rural areas as this, you know, again, what you talked about spatially, right, in a particular way. Um, but I think people's mobility is really limited um, in in many ways. Oftentimes people, you have folks who are housed together. Um, There's no, you know, there's very little sort of social distancing um, just because of economic or other kinds of needs, labor needs, right? Um, You, let's say seafood workers, they're housed in dormitories um, or houses where they're sharing um, very small spaces. Uh, you have situations where they're working in really tight quarters, uh, very much close to each other. Um, you have situations where masking um, may not be feasible, um, especially because, you know, even in, in seafood processing, for instance, um, you get a lot of cuts, right? Um, your fingers, things like that. So even those sort of things, wearing protective things are really, the onus is on the worker, 
um, to, to, to buy those things. And those are really expensive. So in, even in terms of masking and things like that, you know, I don't think that people were giving out masks or anything like that. The other thing about migrant workers is the travel. Um, they're traveling in buses, um, very long distances to get to places like Maryland, right? Um, and they're being housed in along those routes um, in these tight quarters as well. And so, um, you have a lot of things that are happening that make it almost impossible for people to follow um, these kinds of preventive measures that we know to work well um, in terms right. of hand washing, in terms, you know, I mean, you know, ventilation, right? I mean, right. there's there's very little of any of that going on in these places. And they're um, even in farm work where you're really outside, it's, it's really not safe. Um, because ultimately you're walk, working as well as living in very close quarters. Um, so these are some of the conditions that I think that people are living with. And I don't, honestly, I know that things are really complex for migrant workers, but it, this isn't very different from how a lot of people work in rural areas, right? Um, and I think that's, that's something that should be stated as well. Um, right. But this is a condition of, of many people who live in rural areas. Yeah. No, you're, you actually had me thinking when you said other, you know, people who are not migrants, you know, so I, I know that, you know, that um, part of my family is rural. Like I, you know, my mom grew up in a town yep. that has a street named after her grandfather, you know, it's like, and it's a dirt road. Um, and so, yeah. you know, I hadn't, I didn't know until I was, you know, back home for a while, but that, that, one of my aunts died because died from COVID because there was a sense amongst the family, oh, you know, we're all family, so we can have a massive, massive gathering. And this was before um, immunizations were available. And, you know, I kept kind of, every time I have a, a rural health system, um, like discussion, I always think about like, what would I have done living in that town of Britain's Neck that has a few hundred people in it and like how all of our all of my cousins who live there the schools had you know 12 person 12 people per class um you had to get work you had to get on this bus that took you into the main town um if you didn't have a car which was true for the 15 or 16 year old who was trying to get you know work um and if you had cancer if you had any kind of sort of chronic condition, how do you, like, how do you manage it? You're always taking a, your weekly trip to the next big town, yeah, which is exactly. like 30, 40 minutes away. And so yeah. a lot, and that, that is in fact how, you know, my, my mom's siblings who retired there always had to think about these, their health, their health decisions were always based upon having to seek care from very far away. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's why the women from my grandmother's church used to all, have to visit people, right? Yeah. Like, so because we we were filling in the space that had been left behind by um, by the sort of I guess crumbling and and receding yeah. health infrastructure. Yeah. Um, we could talk about segregation and all of that stuff and how that affected yeah. it as well. Yeah. But um, you know, what happens when desegregation is sort of compelled and, and, and say black doctors are no longer yeah. um, sitting in the community. So there are a bunch of different things that, that sort of gave rise to the, the sort of bad, I'd say bad health conditions. Um, yeah. 
it's gosh now I feel like I have to go back <laughs> like maybe we should write something else <laughs> about this um you know the the geographer Ariana Planey actually was also writing like she was doing um some quantitative work mapping this out yeah. and looking yeah. at you know sort of not just the distances to health facilities but the the distances people travel for work um one of the things yeah. that I think that I had hoped was coming out of this epidemic, if there was to be anything good, is that we would start to understand that many of the questions and problems that we have about contagion and infection are actually about labor. Um, like when people are having these conversations about whether kids in school should be masked, I'm like, but teachers, teachers are going to work. Yeah, staff are going to work. And the second you sort of recognize that most of the places that people are existing in outside of the home are work or sometimes their home is work now you that's when you start to have a very different um kind of i guess mentality i hate to use that word about about what is possible and what can be done um yeah yeah which you know um yeah we're we're in a I was going to ask you about contact tracing. Um, we have oh, like, God. I know, well, we had had this no, fantasy. This is, I mean, I, I would love to, like I said, I know we thought about writing about this, but because both of us have actually done contact tracing. Um, <laughs> and I think yeah. this is, no, I mean, this is really, I, I just, I just, all I can, all I want to say, if we have limited time, all I want to say is that I hope people <laughs> understand that Contact tracing is actually surveillance. So that's all I want to say. (laughs) We will probably have that conversation at some other point. Um, One of the reasons I I brought it up, though, is we had been in a um, we had been in a situation where um, uh, I guess we were very early in the in the epidemic. People were sort of like, do we do contact tracing for something like this? Can we do contact tracing for something like this? I think the answer actually might be no at this point. But, you know, we, we, one of the things that I had been struggling with, I think we both were kind of wanting to talk about was not only is it surveillance, but it is policing. And, um, and there were moments where our, some of our public health um, talking heads wanted to be like, no, 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 contact tracing and policing are different. And we were like, "Mm, (laughs) there's so many ways that that relationship works together, especially when you're yeah. talking about, say, STIs, which is what you were doing your contact tracing on um, with, um, it's where it comes from, like those syph- syphilis, like the partner yeah. notification. Um, as I, I've been watching Lovesick again, rewatching Lovesick, or some British <laughs> people might know it as scrotal recall. Um, but, but that the whole show's premise is this guy gets chlamydia and he spends like the next three seasons or two, yeah. the first two seasons, but t- notifying his partner. And so it, yeah. it takes off that little, that fun surveillance um, yeah. side and turns it into basically meet cute rom-com. Yeah. But, <laughs> but it's sort of an interesting, it's interesting to think about like all those times that they sort of meet up in the, in the STI clinic or whatever. Um, and I think, I think, you know, again, I think if we were going to write about this, hopefully we will at some point, but like, I think what's sort of fascinating is this, the growth of, I guess, what is it called? Um, 
these tracing apps or oh, it's yeah, become digital, digital, digital right? surveillance. Yeah. And I think that I think that is something that I was not really, you know, fully prepared to sort of think through. Um, I mean, it makes sense, right? When we when you think about policing, it makes sense. Um, and it makes even more sense in that sense, you know, in that way. But I, I think it's 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 really fascinating to to think through this. Um, you know, in terms of it being sort of more digital now. Um, so I, I, again, so just something, just something to, <laughs> to think about. Um, we'll put it on. We'll put it on our list of things to do. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, no, because it's actually, you know, what's what I find really fascinating is the prison abolitionists really picked up on it yeah. um, in a really exactly exactly a really good way, um, and and that's been sort of a little bit of solace for me. But I, I, it makes me wonder too, like what we can actually do and and think about with respect to that. So, um, as you know, I have this, you know, I have all these obligations. I'm so, yeah. <laughs> this is like, <laughs> when we planned this call, things were looking a bit, a bit different in terms of time. We have a, a couple of minutes left um, in the show. I just want to, um, Wow. We, I basically, I think what we came out of this with is a list of writing to do, but... Um, I know, I know. <laughs> Which is, yeah, always maybe, maybe Scott will let us do a series of podcasts. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> That's really fun. To be continued. Um, but what I wanted to do in this last, um, last minute is to ask you if you had like one thing, because that was actually, I almost feel like the zing, we should end with the zing, which is, by the way, contact tracing is surveillance. Um, <laughs> but if you have one parting thought um, that, that you'd like to kind of um, to, to share, if not, we can also just sort of like, you know, run. But I wanted to give you that opportunity for that, that last word. Um, I, I just, you know, I think it's, it's, it's just really amazing. Um, I, I kind of go back to my students in some ways on this. I think it's really, I think it's important. I wish we would just sort of admit what we don't know. I really wish yeah. we would. Um, and just sort of take it, take it from there. Um, and instead of trying to kind of think about what we do now. Um, I wish we would sort of embrace what we don't know. And I think that's perfectly okay. Um, and I think it's important to do that. I don't know if that makes any sense, but. <laughs> I, absolutely, I know exactly what you're talking about. And I agree. I agree. I say, I agree. That, that's clear. I agree. Um, <laughs> and I'm happy to be like, I don't know quite a bit now. <laughs> um, and I wish, I actually do. I, I, yeah. Like how can, can we effectively communicate our uncertainty? Yeah. Um, I think to, it goes a long way to, yeah. in terms of fostering and gendering trust. Yeah. I mean, I think that's what it boils down to. Yeah. All right. Thank you so much, Derka, for your um, wonderful insights and um, and analysis. And I'm hoping <laughs> that we can see each other again really soon. Yeah. Um, yeah. So um, this has been, I didn't even take a break to actually say this has been COVID calls and there are all these places that you could 
be watching, um, but, but I'm doing it now. And I just want to thank everyone for, for tuning in um, and hope to see you all again soon.